This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now, I'm often asked by friends and sometimes complete strangers over a dinner table. Things like, I recently had this cracking in my joint or this grinding type sensation when I go up and downstairs, and it hurts a little bit. Could I be developing osteoarthritis? Now, obviously, there are better things to talk about over dinner, but at times like that, I'm usually grateful that I'm not a colorectal surgeon or a gynecologist. Now, while the question is an important one, I often find it really difficult to answer it. Osteoarthritis is a hugely diverse disease and the presentations of it in the first instance are incredibly complex. As you'll hear today, this often develops insidiously and the symptoms can vary widely from person to person and will obviously depend greatly on what joints are affected. And some of the symptoms that people might experience in the first phase of the disease include things like joint pain, stiffness, loss of function, swelling, that cracking or grinding type noise that we call crepitus. But I guess the most important thing is that the symptoms are really quite varied and it's really difficult to give a person a clear answer as to whether they have early osteoarthritis or not. And so that's the focus of today's show is about you know, what are the first symptoms of osteoarthritis. Really privileged to have in today's episode of Joint Action, a wonderful guest, Lauren King, to talk about this really important topic. Lauren's a rheumatologist and clinician scientist at St. Michael's Hospital and assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Hello, Lauren. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so am I. And I think there's a lot, a lot we can uh, both learn, but also most importantly, share with the community out there that's listening to this. But before we get into the topic, if I may, I just want to get to know you a little bit better. Can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day might look like? Mm -hmm. So by way of background, I'm a rheumatologist. So very simply, that means a physician who specializes in the care of people with arthritis. 
in my clinical practice, I see, assess, diagnose, and treat people with all different kinds of arthritis, including osteoarthritis. I'm also a PhD-trained epidemiologist and implementation scientist. So that means I do clinical research, trying to understand who gets osteoarthritis and why, what are the health outcomes of having osteoarthritis or OA, and you know what can be done to treat it. And that's the epidemiology side. But I'm also really interested in taking key medical knowledge that's already been generated and ensuring it's optimally put into medical practice in a way that's sustainable. And so that's the implementation science side. So a combination of, of two worlds that I think is really important and I'm, I'm really passionate about. I guess you had a question about uh, what a typical day looks like. And so it's hard to answer that because there's a lot of variety day to day. And I think it's such a privilege of the job. I guess we both share as a rheumatologist and, and scientist. So when I'm in clinic, so Wednesdays are my full day general rheumatology clinic. I get into the office around eight and I see patients from about 8.30 to about 4.35. And I may be supervising medical trainees like medical students and residents in the clinic. And then after clinic, there's still lots of work to be done. So I spend several hours, you know, finishing up clinical documentation, ordering tests, investigations. Um, and that's really different than a research day or a non-clinical day. And so a non-clinical day is usually a mix of meetings with collaborators, trying to advance existing projects, uh, mentoring trainees. Uh, I might be also having meetings where I'm being mentored or I'm meeting with, with my mentors, participating in committee meetings. And what I try to do on non-clinical days where possible is at least protect some time so I can work on the research projects that I'm trying to advance. So whether it's developing a proposal or doing data analysis or or even writing a manuscript. So I hope that gives you a, a sense of, of this not so typical day or but what it might look yeah. like. It's It sounds very rich and this is largely out of personal interest, but how do you manage to quarantine time for the pieces that you want to be focusing on? Is there is a special tip or trick that you use? Yeah, that's such a challenge. And I was, I, I, I have, you know, I try to pick up tips from other people as well. And what I've recently started is blocking out time in my calendar. Um, so forever chunk, this is Lauren's writing time or thinking time, because it's so easy for, you know, um, we all want to help and be yes people. And, and uh, so we end up having all of these meetings all day long, but we have to move forward the work that we're already committed to. So that's just a small tip or trick that, that I've started using. And I think it is helpful because it's easier for me to say no to my availability during uh, the block that I've already kind of committed to myself. Yeah. And if, and if uh, you know, for people who are out there who are doing this, that's similar to what I do that, you know, essentially if you create a block, hopefully it'll happen. But if you don't block the time, then, you know, like, you know, doing some form of physical activity or exercise for people that have osteoarthritis. If you don't, if you don't schedule it, that may not necessarily happen. Lauren, I know you've got a lot of outside interests. So when you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? Yeah, I, I'm a runner. And so that's like hardwired into me. So six days a week, I get up early and I start my day with a run. And so this might be on my own and it's a chance to get fresh air, move, uh, collect my thoughts. Maybe I'm like writing a difficult email in my head when I'm out there running. Um, but other days I meet a friend or a group of friends and it's this like really neat early morning social time. And so that's, yeah, really important to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a great passion for those people that do it. And just by way of elaboration on that, to give you a sense of what running means to Lauren, Lauren, where do you live and what's the typical ambient temperature in winter? Ah, 
So yes, with, with global warming, uh, we're just hovering around the, the freezing mark right now. It's pretty mild by Canadian standards. So I'm in Toronto, Canada. It's three degrees uh, Celsius today, which is really a balmy winter day. Perfect running weather. <laughs> much, much braver than I'll ever be. But uh, yeah, hats off to you. And Lauren, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? So honest, tenacious, resilient, empathetic, and then I struggle with the fifth. And I want to say cynical, but that has a negative connotation. And I guess I just, I'm trying to get at this, you know, um, I try to trust, but, but that I always have to verify. And so if there's like a news headline that something, uh, I don't know, consuming rhubarb could dramatically reduce your risk of X, Y, or Z. I kind of, maybe it's a scientist in me, but it's like, okay, let's go back to that. Um, where did this come from? What is the study saying? What are the potential threats to validity there? Um, and so maybe it's just more um, critical might be the best word, but I don't mean it in, in a bad way, but that's just kind of who I am. Oh, look, I think it's a great quality to have, particularly as a scientist, because, you know, I think a, a lot of what gets quoted in the media and potentially even quoted on this podcast may not necessarily have great evidence to support what it is that we're saying. And so I think it's important to be quizzical, to question a lot of the things that get said and to look for the substantiating evidence to, you know, really corroborate what it is that people are saying. I, I think yeah. I like the word quizzical. I, I'm going to roll with that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So obviously today we're talking about the first symptoms that a person may feel when they have or are developing osteoarthritis. And it's a really important topic, I think, for a lot of people who are out there who are wondering how they got to the place that they're currently at. And you're working with a, a group of other people on the early stage knee osteoarthritis criteria. And I know the work we're about to speak about is really part of that. But I guess before I steal all of your thunder, what was your primary motivation in pursuing this line of research about early stage symptomatic knee osteoarthritis? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are so many people around the world living with chronic, painful, disabling knee osteoarthritis, and we still don't have an improved medication that can turn off the disease process like we do in other forms of arthritis. And so one of the questions that has come up is, you know, maybe we're just not testing therapies in the right population. And populations that are currently entered into clinical trials are really individuals who have usually a fair bit of symptom burden and usually have some changes on their x-ray. So their, their OA is, is well established. In introducing a potential disease-modifying drug in people with established OA, maybe too late to turn off the disease process and see meaningful change in the trajectory of, of their OA. So maybe we need to introduce uh, a medication or treatment earlier in the illness and disease process. But then that begs the question: you know, what is early? Uh, what is early OA? And so the ORSI Early Stage Symptomatic Knee Osteoarthritis Initiative, and that's a mouthful, so we call it ESCOA. Um, it was launched in about 2021 to develop classification criteria for early stage symptomatic NEOA. And the goal then is to provide a standardized way to identify individuals with NEOA before there are established structural changes on X-ray. And so in terms of the motivation for this work, this was part of the first phase of the ESCOA classification criteria work. And we want to understand um, 
as part of this phase as much as we can about early symptomatic NEOA. And, and this phase has been really all about generating you know, all the potential items that we should consider as part of criteria of development. What are all the things we need to think about? And I guess an additional part specifically about this work is we needed to bring in very importantly, the perspectives of patients, people living with OA. And, and so really that's where this current study fits in. Wonderful. That's a great, it's a great overview. And it's a really, as you elaborated on it, a really, really important area, particularly both from the perspective of consumer understanding about their symptoms, but obviously also from hopefully providing a criteria that people can then identify clearly and intervene earlier in the disease course than what we're currently seeing in clinical practice. Just a quick question, the word item, you, so you threw the word item in there. What does, yeah. what does that mean in this context? Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you. And I, you know, without proper explanation, that could mean a lot of things. So it means a, a sign, a symptom, a test, really kind of any variable associated with early stage symptom, or that might be associated with early stage symptomatic neosteoarthritis, or might help us tell if somebody has it versus an MCR, or has it early symptomatic OA versus late stage. And so it's really generating all the possible things we need to consider across many different categories or, or domains. And so I hope that explains what an item is. Yeah, no, it's, it's good, because oftentimes we tend to use terms on this podcast that I get lost with, and I'm sure our listening community gets lost with as well, but that's a great explanation. Now, Lauren, can you just tell us a little bit about this particular aspect of the research that you've just completed and published? So I can tell you or a bit more about the study. So this was a qualitative study. And so that means instead of crunching numbers, we analyzed the transcripts from interviews of people living with NEOA. And as part of these interviews and uh, focus groups, they were asked about their illness experience. And so there are many different lenses you can take in qualitative research and we use the, this lens or methodology of qualitative description. And it's a methodology that's frequently used in health research to understand and, and describe an individual's experience with respect to the health phenomenon. Um, this was a secondary analysis. So it means we did the work after the fact, after the data was already collected. And so we analyzed transcripts of, of these focus groups and one-on-one interviews that were completed actually in 2006 as part of an international initiative to better understand the OA pain experience. And this is work that was led by Jillian Hawker, with whom I work in, in Toronto. And as part of these interviews, and these were done in people living with NEOA who are 40 years and older and, and reported knee symptoms on most days of the past month, they were asked about their first symptoms and experiences with, with OA. And so we felt that we were sitting on a, on a gold mine since these original focus groups and interviews were used to really understand the change in the pain experience over time. But nobody had really been diving into the data around the first symptoms, the first experiences, and particularly the symptoms other than pain. We focus on pain, but there are other symptoms that, that people experience and are really important to understand. What was also really special about these interviews was the international representation. So there were 17 focus groups and three one-on-one -on -one interviews that were conducted with 91 individuals with NEOA at five centers. And so there's two in Canada, one in the US, one in the UK, and one in Australia. Wonderful. And there's presumably a, a mixture of genders, 
in addition to that geographic representation? Yeah, so that's right. So about two thirds were women, but that's, you know, we see more women than men have osteoarthritis. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what did you find? Mm -hmm. So from the data, so across the 20 transcripts, we coded the data, we organized them into categories and developed four key themes. And these are really big picture patterns across all of the, all of the transcripts. And so we'll go through the themes. The first theme was this insidious and episodic uh, onset of OA. So we heard over and over about the very gradual way that OA kind of creeps up on you. And given this gentle start, a lot of the time, often it was kind of in the moment perceived to be innocuous or harmless. And then what was also interesting was this episodic aspect to it. So it might develop symptoms associated with an activity or symptoms during some period of time, but then would go away. And then would notice them again. And at the moment, they might have felt like you know, very isolated incidents and only with the benefit of hindsight, you can see, oh, there was a pattern there. And this was all part of this illness that was developing. The second theme was, oh, we called it diverse early symptoms. And we know OA is a heterogeneous condition. And so maybe we're not surprised, but we heard, we heard from a lot of individuals about, you know, some similar symptoms, you know, Initially, symptoms like pain with high-impact activity or following high-impact activity or going up and down stairs or around stiffness around the joint. But there was clearly quite a bit of variability in terms of people's first symptom that they were experiencing. So, you know, some people said it was all pain and no stiffness. Other were stiffness and no pain. And then there were things like, well, I noticed it come on, came on all of a sudden or it was swelling that I first noticed or it was other sensations like my knee just felt weak. Um, and so found that really, really interesting. The third theme we called must be something else. And I have to say, this was my, I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favorite theme, but this was my favorite theme. And I think it's because it, I can kind of relate to it. So this theme was really, we heard from individuals that they minimized their initial symptoms. And there was this, often this denial that this was not part of a chronic illness like osteoarthritis. And so, you know, I'm getting some stiffness at my left knee and I'm telling myself there's nothing there. So, you know, when I, when I say I can relate to it, that's what I mean. So, you know, many participants would talk about how they would initially rationalize the presence of their symptoms, telling themselves, you know, no reason for alarm. This had to be something I did the other day. Even if I couldn't remember what it was, it's probably going to be something that that's going to go away. This couldn't be arthritis was basically heard multiple times. The fourth theme um, we called adjustments, and this theme relates to these adaptive strategies that we heard that participants would start to employ right away. They, you know, kind of seamlessly kind of started shifting the way they would perform daily activities or sport, like incorporating periods of rest or, you know, getting out each day, but instead of a run, it would be a brisk walk. And so life didn't seem too different initially. And it was, you know, after a while when people could no longer compensate, that's when the symptoms became more top of mind. And that's often when they would tell us that, ah, okay, there's something there. I, I need to go seek care. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's a great, great explanation. And as you went, as you went through that, it just portrayed an enormous complexity to the initial presentation. And I'm sure the next phase of the work that you're going to do will be similarly, similarly complex. But I, I guess, you know, for people who are out there who've either been through that early symptomatology or have listened to what you said 
hopefully it resonates with their experience but i guess particularly for the the second theme you know about uh, the diverse early symptoms this is incredibly variable and so if it doesn't resonate with you it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have osteoarthritis um, but it could be one of a number of different symptoms which i'm sure we're going to dig into but what i guess while we're talking about that lauren for people who may be going through that phase of osteoarthritis or experiencing that in one joint or another any suggestions with regards their interpretation as they try to navigate through those early symptoms mm -hmm. so one is you know keep track keep a keep a health record because i think that's when you start to see the patterns over time when you can look back and you can start to put together what might be going on there and it's really useful when you do see a health professional to to be able to describe what exactly you have been noticing and then you know i think it's you know i spoke about what often happens about people dismiss their early symptoms i'm not saying that's what people should do that's just part of this i think the way society views you know it's just aches and pains. Oh, it's just arthritis, but that's not what you should do. You know, this is incredibly important to address. And, and so do seek out advice um, from good sources or, you know, speak to a health professional, talk to your family physician or nurse practitioner or primary care provider, because this is incredibly important. And there are things that we know can make a difference right from the start, like keeping your muscles strong, keeping, you know, your weight at a healthy level. And so, it's it's never too early to to think about it and to take it seriously. Yeah, it's really really great advice is to be proactive and go out and seek seek answers where potentially you currently don't have any. And you know, I guess particularly for that fourth theme around adjustments, I mean, oftentimes by the time people come and see us in clinical practice, they've stopped doing a lot of things that they otherwise you know meant a lot to them in their lives but they've stopped doing them by virtue of the symptoms that they've developed and so you know i think i think in that context really go out and seek help before you stop doing the things that you love um would be another key piece of advice there now lauren i know this is the start of a journey for you in this particular research project um and as i suggested sounds extraordinarily complex in terms of trying to distill this down into criteria. But again, before I steal any of your thunder, what does the research mean for the early stage um, NEOA criteria development? So these results really importantly build on our current understanding, the first symptoms of, of NEOA, and in particular, people's perceptions of the symptoms and their experiences of living with the symptoms. But these results also highlight some of the challenges for the ESCOA initiative, like one, how hard it is to identify people with NEOA early in its course, because it often starts slow, people may dismiss their symptoms or compensate so that it doesn't really seem top of mind. And it can be actually, you know, years before people seek care. So how are we going to reach these individuals? Secondly, if people may not seek care for some time, who are the experts in early DOA other than patients themselves who have the relevant, you know, lived experience, but which clinicians might be able to provide crucial input? Because as you said, as rheumatologists, we're, we're seeing people much later in the course, you know, like you said, when they often have stopped doing things that they, they like to do because their symptoms have, have progressed quite a bit. And I guess the third point that, you know, where we have to think about is 
if some of the early symptoms are perceived by people living with them as being kind of innocuous and, um, you know, might these individuals be willing to accept a treatment early if we were to have an improved therapy? And might they, or, you know, even before that, upstream of that, would they be willing to enter a clinical trial? So we do have a lot that we continue to think about. And, you know, the study does highlight these challenges. I guess I'll say this has been an important building block, and this has actually prompted an additional international patient survey to try to overcome some of the limitations from this study. So like I said, this was a secondary analysis, so we kind of couldn't ask people exactly what we want. We were limited by the data that was collected. And so what we couldn't ask people, we couldn't really define what first symptoms meant. And that could be interpreted differently by different people. So, you know, we just finished collecting data. Um, where we ask people living with NeoA to describe some of their, their first symptoms, but we've asked people, you know, within the first year to describe their symptoms. And we've also, you know, checked in with participants to say, you know, how much do you remember to ensure that the people who are responding are ones that can truly remember their first experiences. But, you know, this is all part of the the first phase you know we're taking everything that we're learning and hopefully we'll have just really rich important data that we're going to be able to you know take to subsequent phases yeah such such an important area of work and you know really applaud you and the team for pursuing this and it's uh, hopefully something that'll open doors to earlier intervention for people that are developing this disease and as you alluded to when you were answering that question Hopefully, they'll be open to intervention at that time. It's difficult to know. Um, Lauren, is there anything else that you want to say about the initiative, that study or resources that you'd like to point people towards? So I, I guess I just want to thank the OA community. I want to thank all of the patients who have participated to date, and we're going to be looking for more input in, in the future. I want to thank all the clinicians who've been really generous. Uh, we've finished some other we're concluding at Adelphi, a consensus exercise with researchers and health professionals who treat people with OA. And we've had a wonderful response to that. And so I, I'm just grateful that the community has really embraced this initiative because we too feel that it's really, really important work. And, you know, as a community and including our patient partners, I'm really optimistic that, that we're going to be able to be successful in, in moving this forward. Right. Yeah. Maintain maintain the optimism, the enthusiasm, and I hope it comes out successful. Now, we might just wrap this up a little bit with some interrogating of you again, a little bit about, you know, some questions that I think are, are valuable to our community. But if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Oh, it's and, so and hard. You, this is this is the sort of limitless question. So, you know, funding's limitless, you've got a magic wand, you can do whatever you oh. want. Look, as a as a clinician, you know, I'm constantly seeing the struggles in, in the system, right? From patients who are unable to secure a primary care provider to long wait times to, you know, like in Canada, medicine is practiced really differently in urban centers that are much resourced compared to remote and rural areas. Um, I guess if I, you know, had to pick one area to improve, I think it would be ensuring better preventive care, um, because I think that often gets underlooked. 
And so this would mean ensuring that everyone has a primary care provider, improving our funding and access to you know, weight management programs, to ways that we can help people be physically active. Because and as we know, this is a low-hanging fruit because so many people are less active than what's recommended. And we know that by improving levels of physical activity, we can prevent many chronic illnesses. And for people who have chronic illness, we can you know, prevent some complications. And so this could make a huge difference especially if we could do this, you know, in an equitable manner. And we think about uh, knee osteoarthritis, you know, overweight obesity and joint injury being key modifiable risk factors for this. I, I think this really underscores the need for, for investment in uh, preventive care. Um, and I, I guess, you know, I recognize how challenging this is because on like a personal level, you never really know what you prevent by engaging in preventive care. And so I had a patient in clinic with me this week who was telling me about, you know, she was just quite upset that she had developed um, lung disease and was telling me about her recent consultation with her respirologist. And she says, you know, I'm exercising seven days a week. I avoid alcohol. I eat a balanced diet. I've lost weight. Why am I developing a chronic illness? And it's so hard to be able to, like, I can't enumerate to her all the things that she like almost certainly has um prevented by by making these lifestyle change so yeah it's just it's just hard to know all the illnesses that you prevent because just by virtue of them not happening so yeah, yeah it's a challenge yeah. no i think it's 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 so valuable to focus on promoting health and optimizing preventable strategies wherever best we can and we know that for most of the non-communicable diseases which are the huge burdens in our community we spend a lot of time focused on treating diseases, but we don't invest anywhere near as much energy or resource into preventing those through the common factors that you mentioned, whether that be, you know, optimizing weight, increasing physical activity or whatever it may be. How do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? Yeah, constant challenge, right? Because both medical practice and research is constantly evolving. Um, you know, going to conferences, having discussions with brilliant colleagues, you know, at University of Toronto, across Canada and internationally have, you know, um, really fortunate to have wonderful colleagues to bounce ideas off of. Um, and, you know, we have hospital rounds, division of rheumatology rounds, which continue to be valuable sources of again, staying on top of things. I do find it easier when information comes to me rather than having to seek out um, information. So I'm a big fan of, um, I'm on a, a email list, Evidence Alerts. And so this is kind of curated new publications in rheumatology that get gets emailed to me you know, twice a week. And so I, I find that really, really useful. Yeah, it, it is a deluge though. And I'm, I'm amazed at how people tend to stay on top of it just in terms of the the amount of evidence that flows through that's new, that's, you know, hopefully pivotal in our careers and the way we manage patients, but it, it's a, it's an avalanche. Lauren, what's your primary motivation? Why is it you do what you do? I think at some point it stopped being a conscious like choice. Um, it's really is a, a, a vocation. And so, you know, being able to help people living with arthritis, reduce their pain, improve their function and mobility and by virtue of that improve their quality of life is really a, a privilege and it's an incredible source of motivation and in many ways I see research as an extension of clinical care where instead of um, you know helping someone one-on-one -on -one, the work that the team produces has the potential to help huge populations 
or, you know, if not directly, might inform further work that then can help, you know, large populations of people. And that's hugely motivating. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great distinction, because I think a lot of people ask me, why do you spend so much time doing research? And I think it's primarily because of that motivation. So, you know, as distinct from spending time in clinical practice, where I can help a person, hopefully one on one, this has the potential to change the lives of millions of people, which, you know, is is inspirational, and hopefully pivotal in making people focus a little bit more on research and invest time, effort mm -hmm. and, and resource there as well. Um, Lauren, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to share in parting? Mm -hmm. So I, I think the wisdom or, or maybe kind of encouragement that I want to pass on is there's more in you than you know. And I say that because many of the crucially important first line OA measures take work on the part of of the patient. So whether that's exercise or, or losing weight, uh, you know, these aren't passive treatments, requires an active commitment. And it can be hard to get started with, especially when people are juggling, you know, a bunch of other things in their lives. And we know that's the case for people living with osteoarthritis, but it really is worth it. So there's more in you than you know, and, and you got this. Yeah, no, great way to close. Lauren, thank you so much for spending some time with us, your your passion, your enthusiasm for the work that you do, and hopefully you continue to make the massive difference that you are. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So now everybody's journey with osteoarthritis is incredibly unique, and it's really hard to pigeonhole or bracket people into particular categories based upon that diversity. But the work that Lauren and the team are doing is really to hopefully clearly identify what the early symptoms of osteoarthritis are so that we can come up with some clear criteria and better inform people in the earlier stages of disease that they may have it and what they can do about it. Bear in mind that, you know, this is, as Lauren explained, typically an insidious or episodic problem in the first instance, and it can be incredibly diverse in its presentation. And a lot of people do mistake this for something else and make adjustments uh, to their lives uh, where they're trying to compensate for the symptoms that they currently have. If you are in that boat and you're wondering whether you have osteoarthritis, seek care. See if you do have early symptoms of osteoarthritis. Hopefully the clinicians that you see will empower you upon that journey, identify the risk factors that might be important in you and get you started on some interventions earlier in that process. Thanks to Lauren, but particular thanks to you for your continued support of the Joint Action Podcast. Really looking forward to the opportunity to share some hopefully empowering insights with you again in the near future. But between now and when we next speak, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.